Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 17 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Philip and the Ethiopian Eunuch, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? This is one of the uh, thrilling encounters in the entire book of Acts and a tremendous encouragement to me as an evangelist. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And so the Lord goes on ahead of us like the pillar of cloud and the pillar of, of fire, leading us through a lifetime of good works. And a lot of them we, we trust are going to be evangelistically fruitful. I can't imagine a more thrilling encounter that we could ever have than a man who's reading Isaiah 53 and yearns to know who the prophet is talking about and is so ready hmm. to be converted. And so we're going to see all of that today. It's going to be a thrilling study. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. How did the Lord direct Philip in this passage, and why do you think the Lord uses these different means. Yeah, so there are different, all kinds of different guidances and directions going on in this passage. So Philip is guided by an angel and by the Spirit of God, both. And we'll see that as we walk through it. Um, the eunuch is directed by his own internal desire to know more about Judaism. Uh, he wants to be there. He's in Jerusalem for that. Hmm. So he might be a convert to Judaism, um, but also by the Isaiah scroll that he's reading. And he's being directed to ask some very deep questions. So the Spirit uses, uh, or God uses, uh, through the Spirit, through angels, and through the Scripture, all of these means for directing his people, maneuvering them, putting pieces like on the chessboard where they need to be so that 
that everything um, that needs to happen can happen. I think it's important. We're going to see this again and again in the book of Acts, how angels have a limited role. They're they're given a significant role, but it's not an angel that was sent to the eunuch to explain the scripture. Hmm. And so it's human messengers that, that deliver the goods in the end, though the angels would do a phenomenal job. And it's not like they're incapable of it. It's just to, given to human messengers. So to answer your question, uh, the Lord uses an angel at first and then the spirit to direct Philip, and he's using the scripture to direct the eunuch and get him ready. How about forms of transportation? What different forms of transportation does the Lord provide for Philip in this passage? Well, that's a great question. At the very end of the chapter, we're going to see the the Spirit suddenly taking Philip away and dropping it at a place called Azotus. And so the Spirit has the power to do that. He does it to Ezekiel, moves him from place to place. Um, but he also uh, just maneuvers himself. He he goes down. He runs at one point, runs up to the chariot. Uh, so he just normal um, means, whether by his by feet or maybe he himself had some kind of conveyance that took him down to that south uh, that southern desert road. So different ways. Uh, that he has to maneuver the messengers to where they need to be. You know, interestingly, the angel doesn't initially tell Philip why he's being sent down this desert road. What does the fact that the angel doesn't give this kind of detailed instruction teach us about the way the Lord leads us? Yeah, I think that's a great insight. It really is. It's a, He doesn't tell us everything, and that's just how providence works. We have enough information to go on to do what we need to do, and then other things uh, get unfolded and revealed to us. So sometimes we're just positioned and told what to do. We're going to see this later very clearly mm-hmm. in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are maneuvered to a place where they're almost stymied. They, they don't really have anywhere to go. Every direction they turn, the spirit blocks them or some other thing happens and they're like, right, what now? And then they have the vision of the man from Macedonia mm. saying, come over and help us. And so sometimes it's just you get to the point where you're still, you're waiting, you're listening. Lord, what do you want me to do? So I think it's interesting. God tells us what we need to know when we need to know it and not before. Now, Luke describes the man Philip met as an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and as one who was in charge of all her treasure um, as he was going down this desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. What do we learn from this description of this man, and what's significant about his trip to Jerusalem? Right. He's a very significant individual. Now, I think it's important for us to understand at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul says very plainly, look at yourselves when you are called. Not many of you were wise, not many influential, Hmm. not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame, shame the wise, etc. And and so most Christians are common, simple people who are not the movers and shakers. They're not the influential, the the intelligentsia, the leaders, the the, the high ranking officials. It's not it's not the norm. However, there's a world of difference, even an eternity of difference between not many and not any. Hmm. There are some key leaders that are occasionally converted. And we would imagine like Nebuchadnezzar might, if he was genuinely converted, might have had a tremendous impact once he was converted. And so the Lord chooses from time to time to do that. So he's an important man. He's an important official. Uh, He's not the highest ranking in the kingdom, but he's got uh, a a significant role. He's also Ethiopian, meaning he's he's a Gentile. And so it shows, again, one of the main themes of the book of Acts is the movement of the gospel from Jew only to Jew plus Gentile. Mm. And so that movement is, is... is one of the themes of the book of Acts. This is a significant moment in that movement. Um, he's a eunuch, um, you know, meaning that he's he's an official. Maybe he was castrated. Sometimes that's the normal use of the word. Um, he would have been excluded from worship in the Old Covenant. Uh, there are certain aspects of the law of Deuteronomy. And yet we see in the New Covenant, 
he's welcome and is and uh, is is drawn in. And even Isaiah the prophet said, "Let not the eunuch say, I am only a dry tree." Mm-hmm. So that's a, a statement made that some of these things are going to be um, moved aside in the new covenant. And so he also has access to uh, the queen Candace, who's queen of the Ethiopians. Now there's so many, so many questions and unanswered things that I want to know what happens with this guy <laughs> after Acts 8. Yeah. We know a little bit about what happens to Philip after the encounter with the eunuch, but we don't know anything about what this guy does. We do know that the Coptic church developed very, very early. The Ethiopian, the gospel came early to Ethiopia, and it would not at all surprise me uh, that this man was instrumental. Wow. So it'd be nice to know, as Dave Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. What happened <laughs> when this guy went down there? Well, we won't know until we get to heaven. Now, what's the significance of the fact that this Ethiopian was reading the prophet Isaiah? Okay. Now, I didn't answer in your previous question, like I should have, why he was going to Jerusalem to begin with. And so we have to imagine he had, in some way, uh, some knowledge of the Jewish monotheistic religion. He he was interested in it enough to go hmm. uh, up and to make a, effectively a pilgrimage. And so he's interested in the Jewish uh, religion. And we know from the uh, from the beginning in the Book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost there were many that were there that were converts to Judaism from their Gentile backgrounds. And so he's already interested in the Jewish faith. And somehow either he already had one or he obtained a scroll, an Isaiah scroll. Now, this would have been priceless. Hmm. You think about the scribes. Now, they're generally bad people in the Gospels, uh, just very, uh, very hostile to Jesus. But their work was to copy Scripture by hand. And so now he has somehow obtained what only a king would have or a priest, uh, which is a copy of the Isaiah scroll, and it's essential to his conversion. He's Hmm. reading it, trying trying to make sense of it. What does verse 29 teach us about the Holy Spirit? Well, it says here, the Spirit told Philip to go go to that chariot and stay near it. So the Spirit's guidance can be that detailed, that rubber meets the road-ish, where you know you can get some direct guidance from the Spirit. And so, therefore, whenever I have inside of me a prompting to go talk to somebody about the gospel, and it does happen frequently, I never think it's Satan. Hmm. I never think a demon is is putting that on. He would never do that. I always believe it's the Spirit, um, no matter how it turns out. I actually remember one time years ago, I was uh, in Boston and I was um, I was uh, crossing the Harvard Bridge, which connects uh, Cambridge, MIT, my alma mater, and Boston. So I was walking across in that direction uh, toward Boston. And I passed an individual and our eyes met and we just kept walking, total stranger to me, a, a man. And um, I suddenly had a strong prompting to share the gospel with him, to say something about Christ to him. But I threw it off. It just would have been too. It would have been weird because mm. we'd passed each other. I'd, I would have had to turn around. But it was almost like there was a powerful spiritual bungee cord uh, between us. That the further we got from each other, the stronger the pull got for me to go turn around and talk to this guy. So I did. I mean, what else could I do? And I, I so I turned around. I had to. I didn't want to run to catch up to him. But I, you know, I picked up my pace and caught up and. And I caught his attention, and I tried to think of a way to begin the conversation. And uh, he looked immediately like it was completely bizarre. The The conversation went exactly as you would imagine it would. It never got anywhere, and then it was done. And then there was no bungee cord between us. I turned around and kept walking. It was like, what in the world was that all about? And I may never know. But it, there must have been some reason why hmm. 
He wanted that guy to have some guy come up and talk to him about Jesus, which I did very briefly. He knew what the topic was. That's why he didn't want to talk to me. Hmm. And who knows what was going on in that man's life? I'll never know. But what this tells me is the Spirit has the ability to direct us and to move us at minute levels. Go over across the room, see that person there, talk to them, et cetera, and then we should follow it. Yeah, and I think we get a powerful example in Philip of responding well to the Spirit, sure. whether it's a seemingly abstract command, go down this desert road, sure. or an explicitly clear command, go to this chariot, to this man, yeah. uh, that we ought to respond in obedience. Absolutely. I want to pick up on that and double down on it. We ought to respond in obedience, but often we don't. And here's what I think happens. The Spirit in his, in his own wisdom will turn down the frequency and the volume of those promptings if we don't obey them. And we could actually get to the point where we hardly ever have them. Mm. And uh, at that point, I think we can imagine it's because we didn't listen to them when they came. And so what I would say to you, if you're listening to this podcast, if you it's been years since you've had any kind of a prompting to go share the gospel with someone, what I would suggest is say, Lord, is it possible that you gave me some of those promptings and I resisted, I rebelled, I did not do what you told me to do. Would you please forgive me? Mm. And would you give me another chance? And let me tell you, the next time you have that prompting after that prayer, you better obey. Mm -hmm. So go and no matter how awkward or weird, does not matter. It's not our job to have it have a certain outcome. But obviously you'd like something like the Ethiopian eunuch who's like <laughs> ready, willing, and able to come to Christ. That would be awesome. Sure. So if you want to ask the Lord, give me one of those, fine. But just, I, I guess... Obey those quiet promptings and they'll get more frequent and they'll get louder. Mm. Now, verse 30 says, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard what he was reading. So apparently the eunuch's reading out loud. What does Philip ask him at the beginning of their interaction and why does he start this way? Yeah, so he goes up and, uh, you know, the the he's right in the middle of reading the scroll, as you said, out loud. So he knows what he's reading and and he hears him. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And so that's vital. It opens the door to the whole conversation. And, hmm. you know, it, it's also, uh, it's something that we need to understand uh, about the scripture. The scriptures are clear, but they also do require um, interpretation. They require teaching. And so I think it shows the role of human teachers and human evangelists. Uh, the scripture can convert people, but often they require some explanation. Uh, and let me say one more thing. A lot of times somebody who just knows they ought to read the Bible just begins at Genesis 1-1 and just goes on like they're reading a novel. You know, not like it's not true, but – and then, you know, they get to a certain place, maybe in Exodus somewhere or Leviticus, and they're like, what is this? And they are still miles away from hearing about Christ or about forgiveness of sins. And so we know that that we could say, can I just give you some advice? Why don't mm. you start with one of the Gospels? Look on the Bible as a library. Start there. So, yeah, human intervention is necessary. The Bible is sufficient, but um, we need an, an evangelist or a teacher. Yeah, and I think some people have pushed on this point because one of the key doctrines in the Christian faith is the clarity of Scripture, right? Sure. The perspicuity right. of uh, the Word of God. And it's yeah. uh, been defined in the Westminster Confession this way. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place mm -hmm. of Scripture or other that not only the learned, 
but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means there you go. may attain <laughs> unto a sufficient understanding so, of them. I feel like I might need someone to explain that. So what is that the due use of the ordinary <laughs> means? I think that's teaching. Yeah. How can I unless someone explains it to me? So I believe when I preach every Sunday, that's a due use of the ordinary means. I'm getting up and I'm explaining scripture. And it's like, go. oh, there it is. It yeah. makes sense now. Yeah, so when, when the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone guides me? That's actually something that God has provided, guides to That's walk true. with us through the scriptures yeah, so that we can understand. Yeah, let me quote something that Paul said frequently. He said, and of this gospel, I have been appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. Hmm. I'm a teacher of the gospel. So what that means is that that it, it, it requires some explanation. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, which some have called the greatest Old Testament prophecy of Christ. Mm-hmm. How does Acts 8 help us as Christians to interpret Isaiah 53. It's utterly vital to me, and I had the privilege uh, some years ago of writing a commentary on the entire book of Isaiah. And one of my great frustrations, even it would make me angry, I would say it was one of the few times I, I, I just know I've been righteously angry, has been supposedly evangelical commentaries on Isaiah that fudge around with Isaiah 53 and don't talk about Jesus. And they actually might even put it in a footnote. Now, these are evangelical Christians Mm. writing commentaries, but they're writing as if they themselves are unbelieving Jews. Wow. And they're they're trying to find some explanation other than Jesus. Friends, there isn't one. Jesus Christ is the only fulfillment of Isaiah 53 there ever has been or ever will be. Mm. Other prophecies have an immediate fulfillment and a long-range final messianic fulfillment. For example, the son of David the king who will reign on David's throne. Immediate fulfillment, Solomon, and then on down, Rehoboam, et cetera, whole lineage. And in the Davidic covenant promise that Nathan makes, he says, I will place one of your own sons on your throne. When he does wrong, I will discipline him, but I will never take my love from him. He's not talking about Jesus there. Hmm. Jesus didn't ever do anything wrong. But the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic line, is Jesus who would reign on David's throne Hmm. forever. So there is an immediate fulfillment. Solomon is the most immediate fulfillment, David's son. And then the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus. There is no immediate fulfillment of Isaiah 53. None. It certainly isn't the nation of Israel. Israel is not the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 Hmm. because the text itself says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Who are Isaiah's people? The Jews, all right? What are the transgressions of the Jews? Many, more than you can count. I mean, I'm doing Ezekiel now, doing scripture memory in Ezekiel. And he's saying, they're a stubborn and obstinate people who will not listen to you. But whether they listen or fail to listen, you should go. And they will know that there's been a prophet among them. Hmm. Stephen already said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's So there's no way that Israel was the pure, sinless, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Not at all. It's someone else. And the Ethiopian eunuch is saying, who is this person? Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself. No, he says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So Isaiah's out. Um, So who could it be? Uh, And we know who it is. It's Jesus. There is no other fulfillment. It is Christ and Christ alone. You know, we're going to see Philip here in this passage use this as an opportunity to proclaim Christ to this man. Uh, Practically speaking, how might we use Isaiah 53 to preach Christ to someone? Let's say we have a a gospel encounter. Great question. I want to... Finish answering the question you just asked a moment ago with something right from the text. Mm. So right from the text, we have an open quoting of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, 
We know that's what it is. Then the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And here's the hermeneutical key here. Verse 35 of Acts 8, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Mm -hmm. there you go. That very passage of Scripture is talking about Jesus. So it's just mathematical for me. Now, how can we use it? Well, I would say there are two, uh, there's probably five key Old Testament prophecies that would be good for every Christian evangelist to know. Mm. Um, I would say Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which clearly depicts crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet, the Mm. details of crucifixion. Psalm 16, of course, uh, which is the resurrection Psalm. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Clearly saying that Jesus is David's greater son. He Mm -hmm. is David's Lord. So it speaks of the deity of Christ and also of his ultimate exaltation seated at the right hand of God. Those are, are all of them very significant, but these last two are the most significant. And that's Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53. Daniel 7 goes right to the identity of Jesus. And it's why Jesus called himself the son of man. Mm. Who is the son of man who receives from almighty God who's enthroned in glory, who comes into the presence of almighty God and receives from him power and glory and sovereign authority of all nations and all peoples and nations and many of every language served and worshiped him. Who is that? Who's the son of man Mm. coming on the clouds of heaven? Well, it's Jesus. And he's called the son of man because he is human, but he's also divine. So the the God-man who will receive worship from every nation on earth, that's Isaiah, that's uh, Daniel 7. Isaiah 53 gets to the heart of his mission, uh, his atoning sacrifice. There is, I think, nowhere in the Bible, in 66 books of the Bible, a clearer teaching on substitutionary atonement than Isaiah 53. Mm. You know, it says very plainly um, in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Mm. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's our sinfulness. Mm. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's the transfer of guilt, our wickedness and sin and guilt on Jesus, and he died under the wrath of God. Uh, His righteousness given to us as a gift. These two verses in particular so clearly speak of substitutionary atonement. He, being Jesus, pierced for our transgressions. Um, That word pierced, which also is in Psalm 22 and also in Zechariah, three different prophecies speak of the one that will be pierced. Piercing is a very clear, specific verb. It has to do with the penetration of a wall or a membrane by a sharp object. And so Jesus was pierced, and it says, for our transgressions. It's also very good for preaching the gospel because it brings us right to talking about our transgressions. Mm. And the fact that we deserve to die and that Jesus died in our place. So Isaiah 53 is phenomenal. It also uh, speaks of the need for faith. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, It speaks of Jesus's physical appearance as being unimpressive. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Um, It also speaks of the fact that he was arrested and he was afflicted and he died. And the fact that he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was Mm -hmm. with the rich 
rich in his death. So a rich man buried him. And the fact that uh, he rose from the dead uh, after the suffering of his soul, he saw uh, light and life and was satisfied and also speaks of his spiritual progeny, uh, of his descendants uh, who will go even to the ends of the earth, who will hear and believe in him. So many things in Isaiah 53. So I think it's a great place to share the gospel. So Philip clearly answers the question that the eunuch raises in verse 34 uh, by saying, no, the prophet's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about Jesus, and let me show you how. Yeah. You know, interestingly, Philip merely began with that passage. What does this imply about their time together? Were they only there? Did they go elsewhere? What else might Philip and the Ethiopian have discussed? Well, verse 36 says, as they traveled along the road. So they just continue to make progress toward Ethiopia, I would guess. So obviously Philip has a problem, um, but the Lord will take care of that through the Spirit, as we already mentioned. Uh, but the eunuch's going home, and so they're moving along there, continuing. They're, my guess is there's a retinue. There's a whole bunch of, of other people traveling with them. Mm. So there's a whole entourage that are going. Um, but they're, they're continuing to talk. And so, uh, again, it goes back to you know Acts chapter 1 and the 40-day seminar or seminary that Jesus led his disciples uh, through uh, explaining and proving every passage of Scripture relevant. Mm. And so they were super saturated in the Old Testament prophecies and how to handle them. And so beginning with that passage, he showed them the whole thing, all of the best Scriptures. So probably the five ones that I just shared and others besides. What happened after they had discussed Christ from these Old Testament scriptures, and who initiated it in this account? Well, it seems that uh, the eunuch says there's nothing more to wait for. I'm a Christian. I believe. Hmm. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm a sinner. Uh, I need a Savior. He is the one. And he says, look, it's time. And so obviously Philip must have told him about uh, about water baptism. So I think it's important that they talked about many other things, like, okay, well, what do I do? Hmm. I mean, how do I— how do I uh, begin my Christian life? And Philip would have said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's all implied. It's 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 clearly it happened. Yeah. Because how is the eunuch going to know about it? So he's like, you know, um, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? There's nothing, nothing left um, for me. I, it's just time to be baptized. Now, Andy, at this point, we could ask many questions related to baptism, sure. such as should people who make a profession of faith be baptized immediately or made to go through a testing period first? Or what about children who make a profession of faith? How young can they be baptized? We're doing uh, all that? <laughs> well, no. Based on, based on this passage, let's okay. take that first question. And if you'd like to explore the others, we can, but let's right. let's zero in on this question. Should people who make a profession of faith be baptized immediately or made to go through a testing period first? How should we answer this question? In our church, it's something in between. Um, we don't baptize people immediately because we tend to do it on a Sunday morning in front of the church. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't any immediately. We're not having people coming forward at the end of the service and then being water baptized. Um, I don't think in general I would be against it. Um, I do think that you need to be certain that the person gives a credible profession of faith in mm -hmm. Christ. And in front of like 600 people watching immediately, I just wouldn't advocate that. So it's not really a testing. I just want to have a conversation. Sure. That's all. I, I think it's reasonable to have a conversation. I don't need to see him live out a Christian life. Because that, that's I think that's dangerous, where you're then, you're looking for works. Mm -hmm. 
and you're going to wait to baptize. And, and the person has some good days and some bad days. It's one of the problems of growing up in a Christian home. You yeah. know, it's like, you know, as one of my kids said to me, you know, dad, you would have baptized me a long time ago if I hadn't been one of your kids. It's like, yeah, but I got some information on you. I, you know, <laughs> I know how it's going Monday through Friday yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But that becomes dangerous mm. because baptism, water baptism really is a beginning uh, ordinance. Yeah. It's for the beginning of the Christian life. So I think all you need is enough time to make certain that the person understands the gospel and is speaking the right words, saying the right things. We don't have to watch their lifestyle. But I would say within days, within days after a profession of faith, we're going to want to do the water baptism. Mm. So I'm not waiting. Now, a, a deeper question has to do with the role of the local church. As Baptists, we believe it's tied to the ministry of a local church ordinarily. This would be an exception. So I think this is an exception that that helps us not be legalistic about that. I have baptized somebody that I knew would not be joining our local church because they lived in New York State mm. and they're with us for just a short time. But I still felt it was reasonable to baptize them in the pattern of the Ethiopian eunuch. So it's not a norm. We know that in the book of Acts frequently you see some different things like Philip and the Samaritan believers who didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came from mm -hmm. Jerusalem. That's not the norm. So this I don't think is the norm either. I think it's usually going to be tied to a healthy local church. Yeah. All right. How about the mode of baptism? Since we're on the topic, does the following verse uh, verses, does verse 38 teach us anything about the mode of baptism? I don't think it does. And as a matter of fact, I don't think there's anything about the mode of baptism in the New Testament except one thing, and that's the word baptizo hmm. and what it meant in Koine Greek, all right? And so when you look at other uses of the word, you don't have any other uses that help you in the in the, the New Testament. You have some sense of immersion or plunging uh, or any of that in the Septuagint, so you have more data to work with. But most of the evidence is gonna come from Koine Greek writings that are not in the Bible. Um, but that's valid, It's that's how we learn language. Mm. Um, and so uh, there's a, a common grace etymology, a common grace lexicography and, and grammar that is not in the Bible, but it's assumed in the Bible. Hmm. And so you're going to go to grammar school and you're going to learn at your mother's knee how to read, and that's not biblical. And then when the time comes, you'll read the Bible. And so we're going to learn words apart from the Bible. Um, and so for me, the mode of baptism is best taught by the use of the word baptizo in Koine Greek, not by how it's used in the New Testament. The New Testament could either be sprinkling or whatever. The fact that they go down into the water, um, the fact that Jesus came up out of the water, none of that proves anything because you could go down in the water and get sprinkled. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but yeah. at any rate, for me, the, the determination is the etymology and the, and the lexicography of the word baptizo. That's very helpful. All right. How about verse 39? Is it a miraculous transportation of Philip or does it just seem that way in the text? And what's the last word in the text that we get on Philip? Absolutely, it's miraculous. Um, again, I'm you know going through memorization in Ezekiel and, and the Lord transported Ezekiel and brought him hmm. to Tel Aviv um, by the Kibar River. And he set, the, he set Ezekiel down in their midst and he was there with them for seven days overwhelmed. So that's uh, Ezekiel 3.15, which I memorized this morning. Um, and so there's transport that's going there. And it's not the only time Ezekiel has mm -hmm. that experience. Uh, others are more visionary transports, but this is not visionary. This is his body needing to be put somewhere. And so he is moved from the south desert road to Azotus, and he goes around preaching the gospel there. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Hey, the spirit can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> How about the last word on Philip in the text? What, what's mm -hmm. the last thing that we see him doing as we 
uh, come to the end. Yeah, so he goes around preaching the gospel. And hmm. my feeling is, look, you know, that's the thing that you pray for is, God, give me some encounters like that Ethiopian eunuch. You know, oh, that that would be awesome. If I could lead someone to Christ, I would, I would be redoubled in my zeal to evangelize. But in any case, until that comes, we need to be faithful in sowing the seed. And so Philip was just a faithful man of God. He's one of the seven, one of the original so-called deacons uh, who had a tremendous ministry. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful to see God using him. What is the eunuch's lasting response and attitude, and what final thoughts do you have for us on this chapter that we've looked at? Well, I don't. We don't know anything more about the eunuch other than he, um, you know, he believed. He was water baptized, and it says he went on his way rejoicing. And so, you know, the Holy Spirit comes and brings joy into your life. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven when you die. You know, God's going to use you the rest of your life. Mm. The future is bright. And so that's fundamentally hope, isn't it? That's the, that's the definition I've used for years for hope. It's a, it's a conviction that the future is bright, a sense and a feeling in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. And so for the eunuch, the, f- the future was indescribably bright. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean he didn't, wasn't persecuted in Ethiopia. We don't know anything. But we do know that he went on his way rejoicing. Well, this has been episode 17 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode 18 entitled The Conversion of Saul of Tarsus, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.